Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. G'day, Alan. Hello there, Darren. Uh, well, it's a Saturday afternoon, even Saturday evening on the 27th of March as we record this, our 70th episode of the podcast, which is a nice milestone. Oh, wow. We're going to begin um, with the senior officials of the US and China meeting in Alaska, quickly move into the past week of dueling sanctions over Xinjiang and broader questions of human rights and coercion. Third, we'll look back at the outcomes of the inaugural Quad Leaders meeting uh, and finish with uh, Australia's former finance minister, Matthias Cormann, and his new job. Okay, well, we'll begin where well, we have to begin really with the theatrics uh, as two high-level officials each from the United States and China met in Alaska in Anchorage on the 18th and 19th of March, which was the first high-level meeting between the two major powers since Joe Biden took office. Now, in his allotted two-minute statement, the US Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, said that the US planned to, quote, discuss our deep concerns with actions by China including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on the United States, economic coercion of our allies, end quote, and that, quote, each of these actions threaten the rules-based order that maintains global stability, end quote. Now, in response, China's most senior foreign policy official, Yang Jiechi, blew right past his two-minute allotment, going for about 18 minutes, I think, in a fiery tirade, accusing Washington of bullying and hypocrisy, given the US's own troubled history with human rights. Now, once the Chinese side had finished and the media began to file out of the room, Blinken recalled the press so that he could give this impromptu rebuttal, which was quite interesting because it closely tracked a core theme from his first speech back in DC a few weeks prior that we had discussed on the last episode. After admitting that the US had made mistakes, he said, quote, but what we've done throughout our history is to confront those challenges openly, publicly, transparently, not trying to ignore them, not trying to pretend they don't exist, not trying to sweep them under a rug. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's ugly. But each and every time we have come out stronger, better, more united as a country, end quote. Now, despite this drama, the subsequent readout from both sides on the closed door sessions seemed more positive. And I even saw a commentary published uh, in Xinhua, the Chinese state media outlet, that was putting a positive spin on the meeting and talking about the potential for cooperation on climate change. So, Alan, what's your assessment of these public theatrics? Were they carefully choreographed by both sides, you think, or more unexpected and spontaneous? And, and, and regardless, do they matter? Um, does it tell us much about the trajectory of the relationship? Well, the initial uh, statements were obviously calculated on the uh, US's part. They wanted to send a signal not just to the Chinese, but to the watching world that the Biden administration would continue a tough line with China. And then it went off script on the part of both sides, but off script in a sort of calculated fashion. 
Um, I was really sorry that I ended my new edition of Fear of Abandonment. Have I by any chance mentioned to you that I've got a book coming out in the next uh, few months, Darren? No, no, Helen, I don't believe you have. So please tell us. Oh, no, no, well, let me just leave that in there for, for later. Anyway, no, the book ends, or the chapter ends with the Biden inauguration. But if you ever wanted a powerful image of the end of the international order that we've known, I think uh, this was it. And I think that's a good thing because clarity at the strategic level is important in international affairs. And this was nothing if not clear. The Chinese complaint was basically about the US tone, um, sort of what they say, speaking to China in a condescending way from a position of strength. And that clearly gets up their nose. But I'm, no, I'm not downhearted by this. I think it was probably a necessary step for them both to sit out their positions like this uh, before they could go on to talk about other issues. What about you? Mm. Yeah, I hate to use the loaded phrase, but to me it struck me as a bit of a win-win outcome in that both sides achieved desired goals. For the Biden team, it was to demonstrate, as we've discussed previously, how different the US is now that Trump has gone, especially uh, in terms of prioritising values and, and being just a bit more humble and measured, but equally that they are not going to be weak in the face of Chinese bluster. For the Chinese, they were able to assert their claim to being equals to the United States and to make it crystal clear that they would not be lectured to, that they would not take any criticism lying down, especially on human rights. Tom Wright, uh, writing in The Atlantic, uh, made a, a similar point to you, Alan, a nice point, that, that the meeting was a, a positive step forward because it made it clear to all sides that the nature of the relationship is fundamentally changed and that there are deep divisions, and that competition will be the defining frame. And he argued this is positive because an open acknowledgement of the terms of the rivalry does allow both sides to move forward in search of stability, rather than keeping up a fiction that the relationship can still be organised around cooperation. Of course, while the landscape might be clear, I don't think anyone knows what the next steps are going to be. Yeah, um, Darren, look, one, one thing I wanted to mention in passing, because it was the first time I'd noticed it, is the distinction that the Chinese side drew between what uh, State Councillor Young called the United Nations-centred international system and the international order underpinned by international law on the one side, and on the other what is advocated by a small number of countries of the so-called rules-based international order. Now, I don't remember seeing that distinction before, and I don't quite know what it means. It's certainly, uh, you know, not a way that we would frame it. Have you got any idea of the background to that? No, no. And when you mentioned it to me prior to recording, Alan, I did a quick Google and there isn't a lot there. Uh, the Chinese United Nations Security Council representative did mention the phrase in December of last year. And maybe I wonder if they're simply looking to establish an alternative vision that isn't so China-centric, you know, the way that the community of shared future is, but places the emphasis where they want it to be on the United Nations. Although, you know, presumably the focus here is on sovereignty rather than on the UN's focus on individual rights. Yeah, except that division between international law, good tick, and rules-based order, 
uh, bad is just uh, mm. an odd way of framing it. Anyway, it's uh, mm. maybe some of our listeners have things we can read. Indeed. I think back to the quote from Blinken in his first speech that we discussed last episode, and you extracted this one fragment, which was that the relationship would be, quote, competitive when it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must be. And I've seen that three-pronged logic discussed in multiple places in recent weeks, and there does seem to be broad agreement that it's a solid foundation. But the looming question is how such a formulation a version of which uh, was called competitive coexistence by a friend of the podcast, Richard Maud, in a recent piece, like how it's going to operate. The big challenge is what happens when the adversarial parts of the relationship spill over into the collaborative and the competitive parts. And that brings us to our second item this week, which begins with the EU joining the US, the UK and Canada on the 21st of March in sanctioning certain Chinese officials for human rights abuses in Xinjiang. The first such coordinated action since Biden took office. Now, the sanctions were not of high-level decision makers, so it's not clear to me that they'll have much practical impact. Nevertheless, though, the Chinese did not take this well, quickly announcing retaliatory sanctions against certain members of the European Parliament, certain national parliamentarians, individual academic researchers, and several entities, including a German think tank, the Makeda Institute for China Studies, Merics, which does excellent work in my view. The Chinese foreign ministry leveled the charge that these individuals and entities, quote, severely harm China's sovereignty and interests and maliciously spread lies and disinformation, end quote. A few days later, the UK was also targeted with similar justifications, and those targeted included MPs, members of the House of Lords, an individual academic and a barrister, and even a set of barristers' chambers. And the reason it was targeted was some members from that chambers had authored a legal opinion that there was a credible case that crimes against humanity and genocide had been committed in Xinjiang. Meanwhile, with all this happening on the political side, a separate boycott campaign against various international companies, including the Swedish retailer H&M, Nike and Adidas, has been ramping up in China this past week surrounding the Chinese uh, Xinjiang issue. Um, For H&M, problems began when the Communist Youth League dug up an old statement from, I think it was last year or the year before, um, where the company had said that they were deeply concerned about reports of forced labour in Xinjiang. The vast majority of China's cotton is produced in Xinjiang, and so clothing brands are facing a very thorny dilemma here. So, Alan, there's a lot going on in this story. The joint action by the Western nations, the PRC retaliation, including who they chose to retaliate against. But there's also another interesting broader political context, which is that the European Parliament is currently considering ratification of the CAI, the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment. And many officials from Europe have said that these sanctions by China or retaliation by China, if sustained, will quash any chance of ratification, which would, you would think, undo any political gain that Beijing might have gotten from the symbolism of coming to an initial agreement before Biden took office, despite thinly veiled requests from incoming US officials for the EU to wait. Now, Bill Bishop wrote that the PRC had done more in this past week to disrupt China-EU relations than anything that Biden could ever have done. Do you think he's right? I mean, what's going on here? As I understand it, the uh, sanctions simply prohibit people involved from travelling to China or from doing uh, business there. And I, 
you know, suspect that as with the case of similar sanctions on Australians that we talked about late last year, they probably yes. didn't have any intention of doing that, except perhaps for Mirics. Mm. Uh, so it's very much a tit-for-tat response and a reminder that strict reciprocity, that old fundamental of diplomacy, is getting a new workout here. And I think we can expect a lot more of this. And um, look, to be honest, it doesn't bother me all that much. I'm a big fan of reciprocity as a basis for stability in international relations. And if uh, Beijing's actions kill off ratification of the CAI, um, it will simply mean that the Chinese have placed more weight on uh, the need to be seen to respond than they do on the advantages of the investment agreement. Yeah, yeah. I've got two reflections. One is that I think one of the consequences of Biden being a much more boring US president uh, means that there's, there's a lot of pent-up attention that needs somewhere to go and, and China is getting a lot of it. I, I wonder whether we're beginning to see in Europe the same kind of political transition regarding China that Australia went through a few years ago, um, partly because the continent is no longer distracted by Trump. And Biden's focus uh, and discipline has also created the space for Europeans to live up to their own values by cooperating on these sanctions. I do think Beijing's reaction was extreme and, and that it will only harden attitudes. You know, there are a number of swing states across Europe, um, on swing states in the sense of on, on major fault lines in the US-China relationship, like 5G, for example. And I imagine that this past week will only strengthen that political hand of those inside each country arguing that they the country should not get closer to China. My second point is that, you know, from all my focus on domestic politics and indeed for your point about reciprocity, Alan, I still found this surprising by China. It, to me, it seemed to be more than just reciprocal, but I admit I might be biased here because of the fact that there were individuals who were researching China that were included. But I just think they could have played things so much more calmly. The sanctions were not that major. Um, and to me, the fact that they were pretty weak, all things considered, is proof that Western countries didn't want to escalate here, but needed on some level to stay true to their values and express them with a symbolic gesture. From China's perspective, I don't think it's possible for them ever to deter these kinds of minor expressions of values, but I don't think Beijing needs to deter stronger expressions of human rights because I don't think the appetite is there on the West to do that. But still, Beijing chose to escalate. And Sebastian Strangio, who writes for The Diplomat, tweeted there is, quote, a growing contradiction between China's vestigial anti-imperialism and its burgeoning imperial potential, which is a nice quote, I think. You know, Beijing can't play the victim anymore. And these punishments, as strategies of deterrence, I think are very costly for China's interests. Now, let's bring Australia in here. I watched an excellent Asia Society virtual event with Kevin Rudd and Bill Bishop last week, and both made the point that Beijing is not just expressing disdain for human rights criticism, but open vitriol. And that's really been borne out, I think, this past week. Australia and New Zealand did not join their Five Eyes counterparts and the EU in imposing sanctions, but did release a joint statement welcoming the measures and Foreign Minister Maurice Payne made some strong statements at Senate estimates this week as well. And it does seem quite possible that Australia will ramp up its sanctioning capabilities in the near future so that it could do more in this space. 
However, in response, a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson called Australia's asylum seeker detention centres on Manus Island concentration camps and wondered whether the EU and others would sanction Australia as well. So, Alan, it seems more and more clear that there maybe isn't very much that the West can do to moderate China's behaviour in the human rights domain. I mean, do you think that's right? And does your answer have implications for how Australia itself should think about the future of human rights sanctions and our prosecution of our values or these values abroad? Well, I do agree with you, Darren, and I've never thought that our aim should be moderating China's behaviour in the human rights domain. It's far beyond our capacity to achieve. And at least as you read our formal policy, like the 2017 foreign policy white paper and uh, things that Prime Ministers down to Scott Morrison have said, we don't seek to impose our values on others or interfere in their domestic affairs any more than we want them to interfere in ours. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have a right and an obligation to ourselves and to others to express our views on human rights when we see them being violated. We haven't really talked all that much about human rights, uh, Darren, so I'm not quite sure where you stand. But it is pretty certain, isn't it, that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was a document that reflected power relativities and you know moral judgments and historical facts at a particular point in history. The same document wouldn't be passed today. And for my part, I am in any case uneasy about the idea of universal human rights. I'm more inclined to side with the pragmatic approach of the uh, American philosopher uh, Richard Rorty, who said, and I know I'm grossly oversimplifying him here, but he basically said, look, there's no such thing as human rights, but we must act as though there were. So none of this undermines uh, Australia's commitment to be a determined advocate of liberal institutions, universal values and human rights, as the foreign policy white paper says, uh, but it does uh, sort of constrain the way in which we think about it. Mm. Yeah, I'd never made that explicit link in my mind, Alan, but I think you're right that it's very unlikely that the UDHR would pass today. And I suppose... That means that advocates can never stop making the case, you know, both that individual rights are a a vital contribution or necessary contribution to human dignity and and flourishing. But further, that, and this is the important part, I think, that political systems that respect individual rights actually serve their societies better in practical, tangible ways, and not just in avoiding the perpetration of horrors that shock the conscience of humanity, but also in improving individuals' lives in more quotidian ways, including in contributions to development. But th- yeah, this brings me back to the, the the sanctions this week. You know, I think they really highlight how difficult keeping three separate tracks you know of competitive coexistence are going to be. You know, human rights obviously falls into the adversarial bucket. Mm. But if human rights disagreements bring down the CAI with the EU, it will represent a failure by the two sides to keep a collaborative issue, economic investment and so forth, from being blown up by adversarial dynamics. And I'm not saying that's a net good or a bad thing for the world, rather that it just undermines the logic of a competitive coexistence model. 
And I think Australia faces this reality too. The Morrison government emphasises a values-based foreign policy, as we have discussed previously. But I, I even I wonder if every single politician and official got its public messaging on human rights pitch perfect in Australia, that the issue is, is becoming just a purely zero-sum issue, even with just statements. You know, China's approach is that any statement of criticism, any meaningful prosecution of human rights could potentially preclude the warming of the entire relationship, like it's a problem for the entire relationship. And I think, as I said, I think Beijing is making a mistake. Now, I can't see how their reaction this week serves China's national interests more than playing things more calmly and leveraging its significant influence with much of the world to to minimise the impact of human rights actions. But if Beijing insists on bringing the the hammer down on everything, you know, I, I feel like Australia has too many conflicts of interest to avoid future tensions or to cause some improvement in the relationship. You know, I know many believe that Canberra can do better at managing the relationship with China, but it just seems less and less likely that even if we, in quote unquote, improved our behaviour, that that would actually make a difference. You know, I'm yet to see a, a, a detailed articulation of a theory of the case of how such an improvement could happen. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Alan, I saw in the news just yesterday that our ambassador to Beijing, Graham Fletcher, when speaking to Australian businesses this week, described China's disruption of the trade relationship as vindictive, saying, quote, I'm not sure China realises the damage that is occurring both in Australia and internationally, end quote, and telling businesses, to quote again, you've just got to imagine that unexpectedly you may lose your China market for no good reason other than that Beijing has decided to send a message to Canberra, end quote. Now, I admit I was a bit taken aback by these comments, but I think that he's correct and that Beijing either doesn't understand the damage that it's causing or it doesn't care. And either way, each of these steps tilts the gravitational centre of China's foreign policy, I think, away from its anti-imperialist roots towards the very thing it's criticising and thereby undermining its aspirations to lead. You know, what was your reaction to these comments, Alan? Yes, it was interesting to see Graham uh, say this. It was a public event and he won't have been in any doubt that it would make its way onto the uh, public record and Graham Fletcher is a seasoned professional, so I'm sure this wouldn't have come as a surprise to his ministers or the department. Um, look, I think you could read it as an accurate analysis of what's happening. Vindictive simply isn't too strong a word to use. And the consequences this will have for Australia and for China itself are precisely what Graham suggested. Uh, We just saw the Chinese yesterday lock in anti-dumping tariffs of 200% and more on Australian wine for the next five years. And uh, you can also um, see the way Graham handled it as a response to the more direct criticisms of Australian positions that we've heard from Chinese diplomats. I don't think you would, you would say that what he had to say was, uh, you know, Australian wolf warrior diplomacy, but it was a response to some of the language we've heard coming out of the Chinese foreign ministry. And, and I have to say that I think it was a more appropriate level of response than the tendency we've seen on the part of Australian ministers to engage themselves directly against Chinese uh, criticism. We talked about the uh, the PM's reaction to that tweet from a mid-level MFA official on possible Australian war crimes in Afghanistan. 
We do need to hold our ministers in reserve for responses from their Chinese counterparts, not to press spokesmen from the foreign ministry. So in that sense, I think that using Graham or, you know, Graham using himself in this way was a good move. Mm, yeah, Graham is... 100% a professional, and so I agree it's, it's impossible to imagine that this wasn't intended in some way. But there is, I admit, a part of me that just wonders if there wasn't just the tiniest bit of frustration creeping into that language. Yeah, I think he must have the hardest job in the Australian government right now, Without, um, uh, and it must it must be just a, a slog, you know, with him and his team working in China, given the state of the political relationship. And, and I'll bet at times he feels, and they all feel very frustrated at, what, at what's going on. Now, it was curious. I saw that NATO's Secretary-General, Jens Stoltenberg, lent his support to Australia's cause vis-a-vis China, saying that China, quote, had behaved very badly against Australia, end quote. And and there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald that where he floated a proposal to expand NATO's circle somehow. I don't know exactly how, but the idea was to enable like-minded democracies to stand up to what he called Chinese bullying. So, Alec, was such a forthright statement coming from the NATO SG a surprise to you? And how much of a help is it to us? And and do you see any merit to the idea of broadening NATO's horizons somehow uh, to work in this space? Well, look, look, it's always nice to have supportive positions from others. And uh, as a former Prime Minister of Norway, Stoltenberg has had some direct experience of Chinese pressure over the Nobel Peace Prize award to the Chinese uh, dissident Yu Xiaobo. Yes. But uh, honestly, Darren, of all the assets that might be useful to us in helping manage strategic tensions in the Indo-Pacific, I don't see NATO as a useful part of it. Ever since the end of the Cold War, NATO has been looking for a role. You know, in the 1990s, it said, okay, Cold War is over. What we're going to do is expand into Eastern Europe and establish a partnership for peace with Russia itself. Uh, then that didn't go so well, and it got involved in terrorism issues and said, no, no, NATO's going to expand into Afghanistan, and we had the uh, the mission there. Now it seems to be looking to China. So it's an international organisation in search of a mission, but I'm 100% sure it's not what we need most. Hmm. As I said earlier, I look at it through the lens of the EU transition. Um, you know, the European Commission is, is currently working on an anti-coercion instrument that will be put to the European Parliament. And it's clear that pushing back against Chinese economic coercion is foremost in their minds right now. And so it just it feels like the political forces among Western countries, at least, are pushing in one direction. And I think China is helping doing the pushing sometimes. But if, it does mean that if the West sort of consolidates in a way that it can settle on a broadly common approach um, that might put it in a better position to, to you know, contest, I don't know what the right word is, but to make a case to the true swing states um, in the developing world. All right, let's, let's move on, Alan. It seems like it was a lifetime ago, but it was only three weeks ago that we had the Quad Leaders meeting just after we recorded our last podcast. Um, and the headline initiative coming out of it related to vaccines um, with the four countries combining their skills and resources to ramp up vaccine manufacture and distribution to the region over the next two years. In addition to the vaccine partnership, we saw two other new working groups established, one on climate 
and one on critical and emerging technologies. The joint statement entitled The Spirit of the Quad, set out a vision for the region, quote, that is free, open, inclusive, healthy, anchored by democratic values and unconstrained by coercion, end quote. But also in its second paragraph emphasized ASEAN unity and ASEAN's outlook. Now, this all seems positive, Alan, um, but let me highlight a couple of queries. One on the vaccine diplomacy. Some in the region have wondered whether it was too little too late. Um, and that China is already well ahead in this game. And second, there's been an interesting discussion on whether the Quad should cooperate in some kind of intervention or do something in the Myanmar issue and what that might look like. Uh, on one level, you've got a notional club of democracies, and this is a clear case of democratic backsliding or democracy being crushed. But on the other, it would be a very bold um, and maybe not necessarily fully welcome foray into Southeast Asian politics. So what do you think, what do you make of all this, Alan? I think the uh, the spirit of the quad may be laying it on a bit thick for the outcome that we got. And that outcome was a solid message to China, which China has read in precisely the light that was intended, but not all that much more. As we said last time, I don't think there's much more to be done with the quad in a military sense because of India's non-alignment and Japan's constitution. And there are also better avenues for undertaking some of the other forms of cooperation. I mean, I, I do think on vaccines, for example, that international instruments like COVAX are better than people breaking up into separate bodies for doing this. But look, I, I have to admit at this point that I have been too sceptical of the Quad over the years. It's surprised me and China has a way of focusing attention. So maybe I'll be wrong again. Hmm. Across the life of the podcast, Alan, we've debated what future models of international cooperation might look like in whatever international order replaces the post-war liberal internationalist model. And I remember having a good chat about this with David Gruen, who at the time was the G20 Sherpa, you know, back in episode 24 or 25, I think it was. And I think the Quad and, and these recent events are giving us one answer, something that is fundamentally rooted in, in shared security interests and somewhat weighed down by internal contradictions, but that is flexible, not bound by treaty or institutional structures, defined more by a combination of vague vision with short-term practical objectives rather than sort of by a long-term concrete policy agenda. And this model has strengths and weaknesses, uh, but it does seem to be one that is more likely to be sustainable, I think. On the Myanmar side, I think that the opportunities lie not in the four countries working together, but in one or maybe two of them acting, but doing so in a way that is consistent with and indeed maybe emphasises quad principles rather than the quad as an institution. Yeah, I'm with you almost all the way there until you get to quad principles. So <laughs> Isn't there some benefit to the quad being a focal point of the free and open Indo-Pacific vision? You need some set of organising principles, however vague, that represents what Australia and our close partners stand for, right? I mean, or do you think the vision is too vague or is it too weighed down by the contradictions that we've discussed to be such a focal point? Yeah, look, I do think the, uh, the Quad has serious purpose and advantage, but I think you have to get a lot further along in explaining what you mean by words like free and open before you can declare them to be principles. How open? 
you know, India's economy is not very open. How free uh, Vietnam is not very free. What are you going to do about those principles? So at the moment, phrases like what you said before, anchored by democratic values and unconstrained by coercion, don't mean anything other than are not China. Maybe. It makes me think back to your point earlier about the the Chinese phrasing of UN-centred international order um, that focuses on international law might be nothing more than not the United States and yeah. Western, Western imperialism, so to speak. Absolutely. <laughs> but I guess at some point, those in the middle are making choices and uh, both sides, I guess, need to dress up their, their engagement strategies with some kind of rhetoric. Maybe the one that's more successful is the one that can more concretely link the rhetoric to its actions, but we will see. All right, our final item, Alan. Australia's former finance minister, Matthias Cormann, is now the new head of the OECD, the culmination of a hard-fought campaign. And I don't have really strong views on, on this other than admiring uh, a long admiration for Cormann himself. You know, he's achieved remarkable success politically given that he moved to Australia uh, in his mid-20s. And I do think he'll do the job well. But for you, Alan, a two-part question. First, can you talk a bit about the types of diplomacy that go into these kinds of campaigns? How much of it is pure persuasion and how much of it is begging for or calling in favours? And second, is this a notable achievement? How does it rate against us getting elected to the United Nations Security Council, for example? Should I feel proud? (laughs) Oh, well, on the diplomacy, it's pretty much what you, you'd expect. First of all, you have to be sure that the candidate you're putting up has the basic competence to do the job, and Corman certainly had that. Then if you pass that hurdle, it's pretty much working out how to persuade, in this case, a majority of the 37 members of the OECD. The campaign for jobs like this gets mobilised inside Uh, DFAT, uh, and according to well-sourced media reports, I know they were well-sourced because they said there were (laughs) 8.5 maps assigned to the uh, One person doing two and a half days a week. I like it. Yeah, Yeah, no, they only had to say FTEs uh, for it to be uh, uh, straight out of Canberra. Uh, Assigned to the team, as well as, uh, of course, the Australian mission to the OECD. Corman had very high-level support, of course. The PM reportedly made 55 phone calls in in his support and gave him a RAAF jet to travel around in for part of the time. Other ministers were corralled into making the case with their own particular contacts, and even the Labor Party provided um, a full endorsement, and that would have helped in, uh, in some cases. I noticed that Kim Beasley called up Democrat mates in Washington on Corman's behalf when mm. that became necessary. You also have to sometimes change your change your, uh, your positioning. <laughs> yeah, Corman released an editorial on uh, or an opinion piece on LinkedIn. Can you do that? I'm not on LinkedIn. You, you, can you, sort can of, yeah. A, you can, you can publish LinkedIn. a little article, yeah. yep. A- anyway, he, he, he said... Um, uh, that he was all in favour of uh, net zero carbon emissions by uh, 2050 in Good. contrast to his, uh, to his own government. Uh, and, uh, look, one of the things you had to do in this was split the EU, and in that, Cormann was an unusually strong Australian candidate because, unlike most of us, he uh, is a fluent speaker of other languages and he had German, Flemish and French as well. Okay. So should you feel proud, Darren? Of course you should. How good is Australia? 
How good indeed. Uh, but let me temper that just a little bit uh, because I shouldn't say this publicly, but when Cormann was elected against all the predictions and all those Triumph for Australia articles were coming out, I suddenly realised that I had absolutely no idea who the current Secretary-General of the OECD was. And it turned out, as I'm sure um, you know, many people listening know, to have been Angel Gurria of uh, Mexico, and he'd been in the job for 15 years. Now, the fact that I didn't know him is no reflection at all on his competence, but more on the um, fact that the influence of agency heads like this is pretty much a behind-the-scenes one. So it's good that he got it. It's good that he will have a solid understanding of Australian interests, and it's also a reminder of how the Morrison government pivoted from the critique of multilateralism in the PM's negative globalism uh, speech a couple of years ago, which we've uh, often discussed, to a recognition that Australia's interests are actively engaged in the international order and that we benefit, if not directly, then certainly indirectly by having Australians in key positions like this. Indeed, indeed. Okay, well, let's wrap up with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? Uh, you've often spoken about the uh, the links between domestic and international politics, and I'm sure we would both agree that if you want to understand Australia's international interests, you need a solid understanding of the Australian economy as well. So I was uh, really pleased to discover that an old friend and colleague of mine from the Lowy Institute, where he was head of the International Economy Program, Mark Thorwell, who's now the chief economist for the Australian Institute of Company Directors, has a terrific weekly podcast called The Dismal Science, which uh, focuses on Australian economic news. He's got a partner in this whose name is Ivan Assam uh, from the AOCD, and they have a really uh, relaxed and easy chemistry, not unlike our own <laughs> <laughs> chemistry, um, Darren. Uh, I'll always be indebted. Mark was the person who first told me when I was making some wild overstatement at Lowy that the plural of anecdote is not data, and uh, I'll always be grateful to him for that. Uh, so Mark and Ivan talked not just about you know large headline issues like the employment figures, but to draw on one recent issue, an interesting discussion on why some countries that were good at keeping the pandemic in check don't seem to be as good at rolling out vaccines and vice versa, and also whether multi-million dollar investments in digital artworks makes good sense. So if any of you are contemplating that. And what's the spoiler alert, uh, Alan? Do they make sense? Sorry? What's the spoiler alert? Should we be investing in these digital uh, non-fungible tokens? I need someone to tell me the answer. Well, I'm um, not going to invest, but, uh, but it bewilders me, the entire thing. Yeah, no, no uh, the spoiler alert is uh, is uh, probably not a great idea yeah, unless okay. you're a uh, billionaire in the tech industry who's Fair enough. trying Fair enough. to show off to all his mates. <laughs> that, that's the purpose of it, to show off to your mates uh, anything else. Um, so look, I don't know many economists who are as good as Mark in explaining their discipline to a general audience. So the dismal science is a great companion piece to Australia and the world if you're looking for a way of keeping informed about the Australian economy. Okay. Well, thanks, Alan. I'm going to change my recommendation 
because you your point about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights not passing today um, made me wonder whether you know, if Donald Trump had been president, whether or not it would have even gotten the support of the United States government at the time. I don't. Um, I don't it, it, just uh, quick, quickly on that, I don't think so. There's quite a lot of uh, criticism of the sort of socialist components Mm. Uh, in in commas of the uh, of the declaration uh, from American conservatives of the time, mm. Mm. and so I, I had recently listened to an, an old episode of the Ezra Klein show, his podcast back when he was at Vox, where he interviewed uh, Patrick Deneen, who was an academic who I believe is now at Notre Dame University in the US, uh, and a very conservative uh, Catholic theorist, and he wrote a book called Why Liberalism Failed. And when he means liberalism, he doesn't mean sort of, you know, narrow liberal political values in the, on the left-right spectrum now. He, he means the entire Enlightenment project. Um, and I haven't read the book, and it has been lauded in conservative circles and, and rightly criticised as well, you know, by others. But it's a, it's a very interesting conversation, and I think we're at a time where, you know, the liberal project is under pressure both from within and from without um, and that sort of my instinctive reaction to the Universal Declaration, which is of course it's good um, and of course it, we should be supporting it. You have reminded me, Alan, that it, it still was a particular moment in time and a particular set of power dynamics and the lessons of recent history from World War II and that is just a call to really think carefully about what it is that makes liberalism worthwhile and to listen to these critiques. Um, both from without, from countries like China, but also from within, because the only way to strengthen liberalism is to be aware of potential weaknesses and critiques, even if we don't think they have very much merit. Um, because if we can't do that, then whatever order emerges is not going to be one that we like. So Patrick Deneen, I'm not recommending the book because I haven't read it, but the podcast with Ezra Klein, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, it's something that I'll be thinking about a lot in the weeks and months ahead. Okay, well, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AIIA intern Dominique Yap for her help with research and audio editing today. And of course, to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. That's all, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you.